I'm very much not a believer in this whole kind of like disability as a superpower. It's not, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be some awful, dreadful, tragic thing, but it also shouldn't have to be this thing that you sing about and you think's wonderful. I don't have to get up every morning and be like, I'm actually happier that I can't make eye contact and I lose my head if it wasn't screwed on. I don't have to be happy about that. But at the same time, I don't deserve to struggle for it. This is Works For Me, a new podcast brought to you by Ultima Works, a specialist provider of connected services to enable neurodivergent and disabled individuals to thrive in their educational and professional lives. Each episode, you'll meet with a neurodiverse or a disabled person to find out more about them, their journey, and how their disability and neurodiversity affects their professional and personal life. And I'm your host, Amy Ward, And today I'm delighted to be joined by Charlie Gascoigne-Thompson, who's a speech and language therapist. And um, she's also here today to give us a bit of an interesting insight into what it's like to be working with neurodiversity and what some of the things are that she's encountered. Welcome, Charlie. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a bit about your neurodiversity? I'm autistic. And I also have a diagnosis of ADHD as well. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder for anyone uh, not familiar with the, the acronym. When did you get your diagnosis? Um, so I was, I was quite a, a late diagnosis, really. Um, a, an adult diagnosis when I was in my 20s. So oh, wow. it was just before I went back. I wanted to go back to university. And I think deep down, I'd always had this sort of deep-seated suspicion that that there was something about the way that I operate particularly you know uh, in Mm. sort of high pressure high stress situations where I wanted to know whether there was anything you know that that was that was there that, that maybe then I could get support with and help with um, but I initially was kind of seeking out a, an ADHD diagnosis. My sister, my younger sister was diagnosed as a child. And I think looking back, there was probably quite a lot of similarities in us in a way. Mm. But because that was kind of her, mm. it was easy to sort of see everything that she did as being under that ADHD label and anything I did that was different to her almost discounted. It. It's like, oh, well, I'd be much more like my sister if I had ADHD kind of thing. Um, and then mm. I sought out a diagnosis and got a bit of a two for one deal uh, while I was there. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. the uh, psychiatrist that was um, that was working with me picked up on a couple of threads um, and just made some general observations and kind of followed that thread and led to me actually getting diagnosed as, as both with with autism and, and ADHD. And there is there's a lot of crossover between the two. Um, but yeah, I think, gosh, I must have been. 24 I would have said about 24 so about six years ago now how did you feel after getting those sort of diagnoses um was it easier to to begin to piece together your experiences now that you knew that there was a potential reason for this definitely that is exactly what it was it was a lot of unlearning so I think if I Mm. think about things like particularly with the ADHD if I think about things at school I knew I was lazy that was always kind of deep down it was always like I do not apply myself all the things like the teachers would say I'd be like yeah I don't care I am tired I'm up all night I don't you know all these little things but I think maybe there was Mm. this little grain of me that was like 
I, I can't seem to stop. I can't change the way I am. And, and you know, and, 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 yeah. and I think I've gone back and gone, oh my goodness, that makes so much sense as to why I spent half of my life picking my uh, f- folder up from the bus station because I'd left it on the bus for the 40th yep. time. Yeah. Uh, why <laughs> I was so, I could never, I always felt like everyone else was three lessons ahead of me in both life and school. You know, it was that kind of thing. Like everyone would be talking about the mm-hmm. homework and I'd be like, what homework I'd bring it I'd lose it it wouldn't I wouldn't have done it properly I hadn't concentrated I'd you know any lessons I didn't like I was looking out the window and I think when you've internalized that kind of I am quite a lazy person and and that that is like a fault of mine I found that like you know I've really had to pick that apart for myself a bit Mm. um, and really kind of acknowledge that while I do still display these characteristics of someone that struggles to attend to things that, that, that aren't motivating and can be disorganized, it's not through an inherent, like, I mean, even laziness of itself, like, you know, people use that as like an insult, uh, you know, what is laziness really? But I think certainly with me now getting that diagnosis, I'm like, it wasn't for want of trying. It doesn't excuse yeah. me to be able to do whatever the hell I want, but it does allow me to kind of go back and observe that behavior and be like oh there was a reason why this was so difficult Uh, and I think the same with with being autistic it came as a bit of a surprise when I first got the diagnosis um, because I was a bit like oh really but then (laughs) it was a lot of me kind of going back and sort of acknowledging so many of my social relationships the way I've approached situations Mm. um, I've always been a people pleaser and I think I look back now on that and be like, it's not, it, it was always more than that. It was always me masking in social situations like work environments to be like, yeah. I may not necessarily like this thing we're all talking about, but I'm going to say I do because it's just easier to be like, oh yeah, I, I love that too. I hate that too. And then being exhausted mm. from just this constant feeling of needing to kind of keep up with whoever's around me and kind of keep on their level and it was very freeing from that perspective in that I could be like listen this is me and this is how Mm. I present Mm. if I can't integrate within a situation or an environment that may be more on them than it is on me but it is a hell of a lot less exhausting to not just have to pretend to be a different person day in day out yeah I was talking to a uh, friend of mine who also has autism and she was saying to me that just knowing the general rules of engagement for every situation is a real minefield. Um, You know, knowing how to react, what to do, what to say. Um, Absolutely. Like it feels like I think as a like as a woman as well, like and and, and as a girl, you know, it was Mm. there are a lot of you know, the kind of classic complexities of kind of teenage social situations. And I used to be like, I assume everyone has been given this information that I haven't, like I never knew how to hold myself. Like you can, I look back on photos of myself and like group photos and I never know what to Mm. do with myself. I I always felt bigger than everyone else that was there. Um, Like I was taking up space, like that that people may feel that I was too close to them or too loud. Um, And it led to a lot of like mirroring behaviors. And I think it's probably where some of that kind of like comedy kind of came from. Like it was a lot easier for me to be a bit of a class clown and kind of give into that like, oh, I'm a bit weird. I'm a bit different, but that's okay because I'm playing that for laughs. So I didn't then have to try and be feminine and interesting or, Mm. um, 
you know sort of whatever the the social status would be that that I was trying to sort of obtain I could just be kind of yeah. the goofy one and yeah. then I would get away with that and it's yeah it's it's really hard there are a lot of unspoken rules that even as adults like that you, you didn't yeah. realize you weren't meant to say that or you were supposed to have done something and it's like did everyone else get a manual that mine's still in the post like when did that happen <laughs> yeah no for sure for sure you're you're exactly the same person as you were before and after the the diagnosis as it were like it's always been me but it does yeah it it allows you to kind of put a name on it and and really kind of explore all of of what that means for you definitely when I was looking into um some of your your sort of backgrounds and things um I read a really beautiful little interview that you did so I hope that you don't mind here, but I want you to cast your mind back to, um, I think it was 2019 or so. So I don't know, is this first or second time at uni when you were at Sheffield? Second. So I did, I did both my, I did my undergraduate and my master's at Sheffield, but there was quite some space in between. So this, this particular interview that follows me to all areas keeps crapping. Ah. Uh, <laughs> not that I mind. I agreed to do it in the first place, but uh, yeah, it just seemed to, uh, I think it's still on their website somewhere. Um, so yeah. For the Phoenix um, remix, it, it was. Oh, um, right. Yeah, yes. For the yes, Improv Community Hero, the interviewer, uh, Rachel, I think it was. Um, she actually said to you, so as well as running Little Chicago Productions, you teach improv workshops. Um, what are you doing to promote inclusivity? And your answer was particularly interesting to me because it led me into, well, this is perhaps where the the love of, of language speech therapy obviously started to come in. So your answer, Charlie, was um, as well as aiming for a better gender balance in our groups and shows, we aim to run our sessions in future courses uh, accessible to all of those with additional needs. Um, I've recently developed a new workshop that aims to be inclusive to all those with communication needs and speech and language impairments. And then in brackets, my other passion. And so this was back in November 2019. So you hadn't actually trained to become a speech and language therapist at that point. Is that right? No, I didn't graduate until 2020. So I just started, just started my degree. So yeah, it was, um, I was an improviser first and then got into speech and language therapy from there. Um, Yes, I remember the um, the, the workshop I ran uh, and have have run a few times now. It sort of combined those two areas of interest for me let's go back and talk about speech and language therapy then so you graduated from Sheffield with your master's was that in speech and language therapy yes uh, I got my master's in medical science in speech language therapy in 2020 so it's um it sort of comes with a a therapy qualification sort of within it if that makes sense so it's a two-year master's unlike most masters being a year um but that's what allows you to kind of practice under the 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 college under healthcare professionals council would you say that having your own neurodiversity and different way of thinking has actually added to being a speech and language therapist the way that you perceive people's difficulties the way that you perhaps tackle them um absolutely I think something I've said at work before um or sort of about work is 
when you get a group this also goes for when like I, I've worked in schools before like I've worked with people with additional needs in sort of other areas and, it, and it's exactly the same but very much so in places like the NHS because I work for the NHS and, and things mm. like that is mm-hmm. when people talk about those they work with with additional needs they often talk in a way that assumes that that no one else in the room this applies to right. and while that doesn't always mean that they're saying something awful uh, you know I don't it doesn't always kind of be sort of meaning to be a negative thing but when you talk about a group of people in a way that others them you're assuming a that what you're saying is acceptable and you know and and, and that what you're saying is accurate and correct and empathetic mm. and everything that we we should be as healthcare professionals you're also saying that um that you don't believe that these people would be working with you and I think it says a lot about the way that we see disability those that say work with those with disabilities that it's something to work for but not work with um and I think I have often sat quite quietly in meetings where we've perhaps discussed a patient who's autistic and people have made comments that while not even necessarily outrageous comments or anything that they've made they would probably not have said it if they knew that the person sat next to them was autistic or they are operating under a huge misconception right. that the person's diagnosis their their learning difficulties their additional needs are therefore x y and z oh well he's acting in this kind of way because of x y and z and i'm sat there like yeah. not only am i the speech therapist and i think that's wrong i'm also the autistic speech therapist who thinks that's wrong and things like that and it's yeah. particularly in schools as well adhd is such one people are very happy to debate things like ADHD they feel very comfortable having open discussions about things that they just assume doesn't apply to anyone in the room so they'll be saying oh well every everyone thinks their kid's got ADHD these days you know what just because he's running around and he's hyper and they think you know an x y and z or and you're sat there as a person with ADHD hearing this and not a single person in that room would necessarily know that about you and it does change the way I think that people see neurodiversity in the workplace that people with neurodiversity is they're not just our clients our patients uh, our students that they're, they're us they're your colleagues they're your people you work with work under yeah. you know and uh, and I think yeah. it's I think it's important that people who have neurodiversities in a workplace don't feel that pressure as well that they have to be some kind of like barometer of what's acceptable and not acceptable to I should be allowed to yeah. be at my workplace and be autistic with a, you know, a lowercase a sometimes. I don't, I don't always want to have to come in and be like, well, as the autism checker, let's run that past me or anything like that. Like I, I expect <laughs> to work in a good supportive yeah. environment. I shouldn't have to be the one kind of almost checking people for things. But it does give me an insight to be like, it's funny you should say such and such yeah. because in my experience, you know, I don't speak on behalf of all autistic people here, but as an autistic person yeah. myself, what you are saying is potentially a bit off the mark. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It kind of gives me yeah. like a special little hat that I get to put on that, you know, gives me that extra little bit of uh, backing with something I'm saying. But at the same time, you don't always want people to be kind of looking down the table at you and sort of checking in with you to make sure, you know, ideally you would just yeah. be an empathetic person working in healthcare anyway. You shouldn't have to just check that you haven't said something outrageous uh, or that you felt like you shouldn't say yeah. something because I'm sat there. You probably shouldn't say it anyway. If you if you wouldn't say it to me, you probably shouldn't be saying it about a patient. 
So thinking about working with patients then, I mean, do you think that improv does translate quite well into the role as a speech and language therapist? And I'm, I'm thinking about things like active listening techniques and thinking on your feet and, and building rapport, because I, I think that's probably one of the cornerstones of, of a good therapeutic relationship is that rapport building. Um, has improv helped you with that? I would say so, definitely. I think I think if 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 speech and language therapy is what I do, improv is what I am. So I think it Love kind it. of sort of filters very much into kind of the way I I present as kind of a, a speech therapist. I work uh, I work on the stroke unit, so I work in sort of hyper acute and acute as well as rehab. And I think those improv skills allow me to be very flexible. So for example, I'm. On, on any given day I can be seeing someone within hours and minutes of their stroke and I'm doing like swallowing input wow. I'm doing a lot of assessment I'm being very analytical but I'm also dealing with a patient and their family who've just received this diagnosis that you know they may be quite yeah. medically unwell and I'm playing that character as it were I'm putting on that face and mm. then five minutes later I'm seeing the patient who's been with us for six months for communication therapy and I know them and I'm pushing them and I'm you know and I've got that kind of rapport with them and yeah. I'm the same person just with different you know different hats, different hats on. and on. I think yeah it's the hat thing again I'm bringing hats up all it's a very hat themed yeah. pod um yeah <laughs> I've got that kind of and I think improv's great for that because it's almost like in an improv scene even just like at its core in like any kind of improv scene you're being given a gift you're being given an offer and you're running with it and that's what working on the stroke unit is like uh sometimes those gifts mm. may be people choking on mini cheddars sometimes those gifts are just patients telling me where to go and other times it's patients making progress whatever it is like whether mm. it's firefighting or it's just kind of generally tackling the the problems or the the, the to-do list in front of you that kind of flexible plate spinning approach that you get from improv absolutely works so well I think in speech therapy and it also allows me as well yeah. to kind of remain that kind of professional empathetic sort of they, they talk about this a lot in healthcare that it's not about sympathy it's about empathy and I think that's very hard for a lot of people mm -hmm. to understand because most people particularly people that go into healthcare they're very good people with lots of feelings and you come across dreadful things all the time in our job yeah. that if you genuinely took everything on all of the time you wouldn't get past Monday <clears throat> and I think with improv like being able to have that almost kind of I'm using some kind of slightly naff phrase in here, but like that slightly Brechtian kind of, I've run on, I've mm. put on a hat, I've done a thing and then I've left and it's gone and I've drawn a line under it. There's a, yeah. a bit of an element of that where it's like, I am the person that they need in that moment. But when I go and I move away, I don't take that with me. I don't do them kind of the disservice of burdening myself with the situation in order to not be a good therapist in three minutes time and I think improv there's a lot to be said mm. for that kind of ability to pick it up and put it down uh you know it's everything yeah. in that moment and then it's gone um so yeah, yeah. definitely yeah so do you think improv can actually be really helpful for people with communication difficulties I think so. Yeah, that? we we run a we run a communication group um, on the ward that I have, and I think a lot of what you're always trying to kind of 
look at promoting within speech therapy is, is functional recovery. So it's very, very easy to be like, oh, you're having some difficulties getting your words out. Let us sit for an hour a day and we'll practice naming 60 pictures of different animals until you can get less than five errors. And you go, yeah, that's absolutely fine. But what is that for a person? What does that represent in a person's life, being able to name 60 animals slightly quicker than yeah. they named 60 animals yesterday? And so the communication group is, is by all intents and purposes, a conversation group. And a lot of that mm. is 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 improvised to a certain extent. You're looking at trying to facilitate an environment in which people can have spontaneous conversation. They can actually say what they want to say. They're hearing what another person is saying and picking up on it. And it's mm. very much kind of what my I, I do a, a workshop uh, about communication that is is based on kind of the principles of communication. So um, quantity, okay. quality, relevance, and manner. And yeah. when you're looking at facilitating a good communication environment for those with communication difficulties to improve within, you want to always be thinking about those things. So, for example, if you've had a patient who's had um, like a frontal stroke that can sometimes affect their inhibitions, they talk a lot. Yeah. They, they often are very verbose and will fill a lot of that space. And what you want to kind of allow them to be conscious of is the extent to which they may be dominating a conversation without meaning to. And similarly for someone with uh, an aphasic presentation who can't get their words out, you want to be recognizing how we can look at supporting them to get the most out of it. We all know that, say, within an improv scene, how much can be said by not saying anything, just with a look, a smile, mm. a nod, a single mm -hmm. word, can have a lot of gravitas than the person on stage that's just jabbering, jabbering, jabbering and, and steamrolling the situation. Mm. And it can be about tilting that balance and looking at that. And so I think there are a lot of those kind of communication principles that are really applied through improv and then vice versa um kind of for our patients how yeah. we can kind of get them thinking about listening to the other person taking that gift taking that back on and, and how they can then sort of develop their own communication skills in their recovery with that what would you say are some of the biggest points of concern that you have found now when you cast your mind back since your diagnosis, when we think about education, when we think about neurodivergent support in the workplace, I mean, are there any things that you think actually could be improved from your own experiences? Mm. I think I think the attitude towards additional support needs to change and it mm. needs to change across the board for disability. The two things that really stand out to me, both from my own experiences kind of pre-diagnosis and then yeah. from my experiences of kind of studying disabilities, I guess, as part of my degree and sort of seeing it from kind of both sides of that is everyone wants the same thing. Yeah. Everyone wants there to not be problems for anybody but no one can really yeah. fully seem to recognize what that looks like and I think if you take kind of like the social model of disability there's a lot to be said for actually it's society that is disabling and restrictive and yeah. I absolutely agree with that however I do also think it's important not to shy away from the fact that a lot of disabilities cause 
things to be more difficult for people. I'm very much not a believer in this whole kind of like disability is a superpower. It's not, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be some awful, dreadful, tragic thing, but it also shouldn't have to be this thing that you sing about and you think's wonderful. I don't have to get up every morning and be like, I'm actually happier that I can't make eye contact and I lose my head if it wasn't screwed on. I don't have to be happy about that. But at the same time, I don't deserve to struggle for it. And I think a lot of that comes with us really recognising what we mean by additional support. It's not about making things easier for people, but it's also about thinking that something that looks like a get-out-of-jail-free card for somebody, something that looks like pandering to someone, is it's so easy to see people actually just being given kind of the equity that they deserve as some kind of pandering. No one calls wheelchair ramps pandering. Uh, People would recognize instinctively, oh, well, of course, if there are people in wheelchairs that would need a ramp, then they would need a ramp. But suddenly when people start suggesting steps within sort of disability adjustments that maybe are somewhat inconvenient for others, even if they're arguably quite simple things, like, for example, Mm. um, the big ridiculous debate when it was like oh they're banning clapping at graduations no they're Mm. not but even Mm -hmm. if they were who loves clapping that much that they wouldn't be prepared to just not clap and it's things like that suddenly it's this idea that like any real step into making life easier for people that possibly encroaches on 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 a non-disabled non you know uh, on a neurotypical person's experience of life is suddenly like oh my goodness that that's too far and 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 this happens so much in schools like oh well that kid gets this but my kid doesn't well does your kid need this does your you know and and it's it's obvious on the surface but it's very much ingrained within the way that we are as a society we we have people that go into healthcare professions who really want to help those who suffer help those who, who are poorly want to fix people but God forbid you ask them to put subtitles on a training video and suddenly it's like, oh my God, like what the hell, really? Like, And you're like, right, well, I <laughs> guess you didn't much. love, yeah, I guess you didn't yeah. love people with additional needs quite as much as you said you did in your interview. And I think that is probably the biggest thing for me is like, speak to disabled people, get disabled people in and working in your environments rather than trying to work out what they might need, ask them. And instead of asking them, pay them, actually employ them. Don't just come and get a little Mm. bit of free labor off that guy that you know, that's autistic. And he might tell you how you're thinking more autistic friendly and go, cheers mate. And then leg it, start Mm. employing people, start having people within your workplaces who are disabled, who are neurodiverse. And you will suddenly find that you become a much more Mm. accessible workplace because you have the people making the decisions, seeing things from this point of view. And I think very much as well, the way it's absolutely okay to talk about disability and talk about neurodiverses as things that are harder that that it's Mm. okay to recognize some of the more negative aspects of disability and neurodiversity but without always putting that onus back on that person if there Mm. are things that can be done to alleviate some of those issues that's fine but don't put it back onto that Mm. community to be like well hold your heads up high you know it's not disability it's disability those kind of things I find extraordinarily Mm. patronizing and very much paper over the Mm. cracks of like the real issue at hand Mm. which is no no these things are harder for us and actually Mm. let's rather than just pretending that autism is my superpower let's actually look at how you can support me as an autistic person to to function within this this thing what advice 
would you actually give somebody with autism and or ADHD? So put, put both hats on now, Charlie. What advice would you actually give them if they are struggling with um, a diagnosis or they are actually perhaps looking at seeking a diagnosis? I think the, t- the two biggest things, the first thing would be find your community. It doesn't have to be a community of other people with ADHD or autism or whatever it is, but yeah. find the people who you trust implicitly that will listen to you, that will adhere to anything that you sort of request in terms of like, if you need X, Y, and Z, or, or can you please not do X, Y, and Z, find those safe people. Um, and I think I would also really just encourage people to think about like what their neurodiversity means for them. So yes. don't try and make a diagnosis, feel like a diagnosis has to kind of match you or like you have to match up to, oh, well, I hit nine out of 10 of those things. Do I have number 10? Like, don't, don't worry about what it says on paper. Like, yeah. believe me, if you are autistic you are going to resonate with the diagnostic criteria like ultimately that is how a diagnosis is given and and whether that is a self-diagnosis or Mm. sort of like a professional kind of medical diagnosis they are literally just going Mm. to be looking at ways in which you match those criteria it's not about Mm. sort of well I don't do this thing so or I'm not as ADHD as my sister in my particular Mm. you know and actually it's not about thinking about things in terms of like uh you know do, do I tick all of these boxes? Am I autistic enough? I would think about the ways in yeah. which you are starting to recognize how the way that you are, the person that you are, the way that you sort of present and the things that are easy for you, harder for you, how they are yeah. influenced by your neurodiversity. I think yeah. one of the biggest things that's starting to kind of turn a little bit, particularly kind of within autism is we talk a lot about it being kind of a spectrum disorder, but actually, like many disorders, it's more of a dimensional disorder, And by which I mean it's not about kind of high-functioning this, low-functioning that, or severe or mild. You're not mildly autistic. Mm. No one is mildly ADHD. In the same mm. way, you don't have severe ADHD either. You have areas of functioning within yeah. your ADHD that you may find considerably more significantly impacting on you than others. Yeah. I know for me with something like with autism, there are areas that I have absolutely no real issue in and there are areas that I find impact me greatly. And within that, I still am autistic. Those are still autistic things about me, but I don't look like my friend who presents slightly differently and I think as in life none of us are all the same and so don't be afraid to consider that something about you that you know that you find difficult or something about you that you find different it could absolutely be a part of that neurodiversity that that label that either you you've taken on or that you're seeking but it also doesn't have to be and it absolutely mm. is about identifying mm. for yourself like what do you recognize as being part of like your story what do you recognize as being part of your neurodiversity rather than feeling like yeah. you have to match up to someone else's you know the, really the, from an official diagnosis point of view the only person that's going to take that evidence is the person whose job it is is to assess you if that yeah. evidence matches within that criteria yeah that's a diagnosis it doesn't matter you know it doesn't there's no concrete answer that's sort of given I know that like when I got my ADHD diagnosis I felt like I was reading that 
Charlie assessment. It was bizarre. Like the amount of very seemingly <laughs> specific questions and tangents it went on. I was like, I can't believe you're asking me this. I mean, it's true, but that's really random. What are you talking about? And yeah. it's because actually what we think we know about neurodiversity is like a drop in the ocean of to what, you know, to, to how things actually are. And yeah. with something like autism, it's not just those couple mm-hmm. of things that people think. It's so pervasive in so many different areas of your life that, that yeah, don't, don't yeah. be afraid to recognize that anything about you that you feel is part of that neurodiverse identity is absolutely valid and 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 Mm. find out what that kind of means for you what are you most proud of in your life now so far both as a person in as a speech and language therapist but also as somebody that identifies as being autistic and you've got adhd it's more the fact that I have managed to achieve anything that I set out to achieve. Where yeah. I was pre-diagnosis, I'd written off so many things for myself, like academic achievement, yeah. um, you know, holding down a, a difficult job, a complex job, a job where I'm in charge of things and yeah. people have to ask me my opinions and yeah. things like that. So I'd say that, you know, uh, simply passing the degree and achieving the job and continuing to kind of thrive in it is something I'm proud of but I think what I'm proudest of is that I really like my job Uh, I'm proud to have found a career that I genuinely love going into work and I I I really always want to do my best in um, and feel that I can thrive within that since you know since my diagnosis and been able to kind of recognize where I need that support all along perhaps it turns out that I could be a high achiever I could do things I wanted to things that were difficult and so for me I think it's 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 that really it's being able to do what I do every day and love it I'm I'm very lucky and I also recognize that there are a lot of things you know within my life that you know I'm very lucky to have a good support network I'm very lucky you know in that the opportunities I have had and you know not everyone starts off on, on on even keel with things like this so you know there are a lot of things that will make achieving those things much harder but support is always out there and I think you know whatever you want to do you can do it providing that you know you are adequately supported and I think there's a lot of shifts within society that we have to do there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done um a lot of changes that need to be made but no one should ever feel that they can't do something and can't achieve something simply because of, of a label or a perceived difficulty a barrier um to that success if you want to find out more about some of the things that we've been talking about today then there are some handy links in the show notes and we'll see you on the next episode